control systems failure. Launching life pod. Navigating to nearest habitable planet. Life support online. Rations check complete. Entertainment capacity critical. Please select shortlist. Hello and welcome to Remote Outpost Games, our new interview show that may bear a passing similarity to a popular tropical island-themed music selection show. Our guests are stranded on a remote outpost far from the Galnet comms channels and with no immediate hope of rescue. We asked them to pick five games they couldn't live without if they were put in this situation. Since we're Lave Radio, every outcast already gets a lifetime subscription to Elite Dangerous and a Game Boy copy of Tetris. Everything else is up to them. Tonight we're joined by James Buckle, an indie game developer and former senior tester for the Creative Assembly, where he worked on the Total War series for over a decade. He's been charting his progress from game industry employee to solo designer via a Gamma Sutra blog. His first game, Captain Kaon, a pixel art gravity shooter inspired by classes, classics such as Thrust. Hello James and welcome to the show. Hi there. Uh, so, to start off, if you don't mind, could you tell us a little about yourself and how you got into games development? I think I was about nine, ten years old, and I got this old second-hand Spectrum in a box full of games, and uh, really liked it because, like, I was a kid who grew up on a farm, so it was like lots of running around outside with trees, and then it's like, hey, look, here's a, here's a, here's a thing with with sprites on the screen, and it's awesome. Um, it came with a little book saying, "This is how you write basic," and I was like, "Oh wow, this is this is awesome! Like, I can make my own games. It's so cool." Um, so I just sort of started making little things on the spectrum, which unfortunately was uh, uh, had a problem saving. Every time I'd make something one day, then the next I had to go back to the start again, and uh, yeah, didn't get to keep any of any of my work unfortunately. But um, then I, I moved on to um, the Amiga, which was a neat little bit of kit, the Amiga, um, and I started making lots of cool pixel art things with that. Yeah, then went to college, learned how to actually code properly, which was always useful. And then briefly uh, worked for EA Bullfrog um, for about four months and then moved to Creative Assembly. And then 12 years later, I've uh, left and made my own game. Kind of mirrors my uh, my introduction to um, the microcomputers and I love the Amiga as well. Speaking of someone else who loves the Amiga, we're also joined by Chris Jarvis. Hello. Yeah, it's interesting. James has got a really uh, kind of similar start with coding to me because I sort of learned a bit of Spectrum Basic and did a bit of coding on the Amiga as well. So, uh, yeah, it's fascinating to have you here. So um, tell us a little bit more about Captain Kaon. Uh, you know, what made you want to, you know, create that particular game? We um, did this thing at uh, CA, uh, this sort of lunchtime kind of club thing we, we did for a little while called uh, Game Club, where we sort of got together and just made little silly little game ideas and things like that. I suggested that um, I, I this game on the Amiga, which um, called uh, Gravity Force 2, fantastic game. I used to play it with my brother all the time. It was awesome. And I, I love Thrust on the Spectrum as well. So I said, hey, we should make this. We should just... But then it, it didn't kind of pan out. We didn't go anywhere with it. But after I left... Uh, we're sort of sitting down the pub and I was pondering what kind of game I'm going to make and, so, and chatting to some of the other people and uh, one, of the, one of my old testers um, he said you should do that that game you suggested for Game Club you should go and do that just sort of snowballed from there and then ended up being Captain Kaon 
I, I don't know if you can maybe refresh my memory because there was Gravity Force 2, but there's also Gravity Power as well. Yes, yes. Amiga. Uh, now, one of those was given away on the front of a magazine. Was was that Gravity Power? I think the actual, the, the Amiga Power people, the magazine, they basically, they had the demo of Gravity Force 2 was on the front, was on the cover disc of that, and they uh, then they decided to actually, like, buy it or something, and then they got this Gravity Power version, which... Uh, I don't, I don't think it was as good, though. It uh, didn't really feel as... Uh, a lot of the le- new levels that were added in weren't as good and things like that. Yeah, because I played it quite a lot with my brother, uh, and he's always he's always talking about how somebody needs to remake it on the PC, like a really you know good version. I have to say, uh, the thing that Captain Kaon most kind of reminded me of when I saw some footage and things, and it reminded me of a game that I used to love on the Amiga that was, I think, really kind of part of the Amiga's later days. It was a bit of a swan song, uh, but it was a thing called Fly Harder. That had some similarities to the, the kind of puzzle elements in Captain Kaon, because in each of the level there are these reactors where you have to go and you have to pick up these energy balls and kind of fly them back to the reactors and, and drop them in. Uh, and there are kind of environmental based puzzles that are quite similar to um, some of the things in Captain Kaon with the uh, like the switches and the trips. And the... it's one of the things that got me excited about Captain Kaon was I loved Fly Harder and nobody else ever played it. And I saw Captain Kaon and thought, I, you know, I absolutely loved uh, Fly Harder. I'd love to play something like that again. There's quite a few people sort of mentioned uh, yeah, all sorts of old games like this, um, like Oids is one I get um, a lot. And uh, unfortunately, they all seem to have basically died off in the kind of mid 90s. So essentially, the Amiga era was kind of the last real sort of point when these gravity shooters were still played. And then after that, by sort of 96, 97, they all seem to have gone. You get the odd one released in indie every sort of, every sort of three or four years, someone will make, sort of make one and release it. And uh, yeah, sort of it's my turn at the moment kind of thing. So, I mean, it was a, it was a, a sort of staple in a sense at one stage of, a 2D arcade game and I think perhaps it was a game genre that went out when everything sort of went over to 3D game engines a lot of these old 2D art forms kind of disappeared but obviously recently there's been a huge resurgence in 2D game design and, and, and pixel art and so yeah it's, it's ripe for these sort of things to, to find a new audience. Am I right in thinking it's basically kind of one of the first physics-based games? So the original original version was called Gravatar um, which was an Atari version, and then basically when it got ported or or ripped off by other platforms, it was called Thrust, and then so on everything else it was called Thrust. Um, and it was at the time Gravatar and Thrust were incredibly popular um, in the sort of early to mid eighties. Um, I think um, I think Lunar Lander was the original one to actually do this kind of flight mechanic, the tilt and thrust flight mechanic, and basically Gravatar came along and just just said. You know, it would be so much more fun if we stick a gun on it and let you shoot stuff. So they just stuck a gun on it, let you shoot stuff, and then it became Gravatar, and by extension, Frost. Right, well, we'll get to your first choice then. Uh, and your first choice is a game you must have spent a great many hours working on, Total War. I think most people would have thought you were sick to death of testing the series. Uh, so why does it have a place on your list of essential games? Typically, um, we'll play over a thousand hours of each version of Total War. And 
I still loved it at the end of it, um, even though it was I was testing it, even though I spent most of the time working on broken versions and having to constantly restart because some programmer made a little tweak that meant that the save games um, were no longer compatible and I had to restart. Which, but um, I mean, I, I when we made the switch to uh, Steam for Empire, yeah, I spent over a thousand hours playing it, which seems to be a kind of pretty typical later on with, with Shogun and stuff like that. Seems a typical amount of time I would actually spend working on the game, which. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of time, but I mean, because it's such a good game, you kind of it's very easy to test it. It's very easy to work with it because you just it's it's enjoyable. You can. I mean, I used to do this thing all the way back in the, the original show when we did Mongol Invasion. At the end of the day, every day, I would load up a map, get a bunch of Korean Napa thrower guys, put them on a hill, and then just have some people running up the hill at me, and then just watch as they just throw all their nap for and everybody explodes and goes flying everywhere because you just you just find little little things you can do that are just fun and silly and uh and it's just it's such a sort of well well made uh game by a sort of very dedicated team that was just great great to work with and yeah and always it's just, it's still it's a game that i very much enjoy playing even even if i you know if, if i hadn't worked for ca then i would be a massive total war fan because um I mean, when i first heard about uh, total war i was actually at ea at the time I, mean, I was a big uh, civilization fan but the thing that always annoyed me about Civilization was I couldn't fight the battle. I was looking at the thing and like, like you, you'd, you'd do some little attack and the little random dice roll would be like, oh no, you lost this. Yeah, your, yeah, your infantry with their rifles just lost the guy with the stick. And I always kind of thought, well, no, I want to actually fight the battle in Civilization. I want to take control and actually, you know, and so it will let you do that. And um, yeah, it does it in a very sort of fun, engaging way. Yeah, so I, I've, I've always really enjoyed working on it as, and, and playing it. as. Uh, um, yeah, it's, it's quite tough to kind of work on a game... Um, an alpha stage and stuff like that when half the features aren't in there when a lot of things don't work although in the case of total war because it's like modifying an engine each time it kind of it's always in a fairly kind of playable decent state so so yeah it's uh it's, it's definitely a game i can sink many many hours into and still enjoy yeah, it's one of those games that I've always kind of wanted to, to take a look at because um, I really like the, the TV show Time Commanders. Uh, and I just kind of say whenever that show whenever that show comes back and they brought it back recently, I watch that show and I think, oh yeah, I really must play Total War. But from your point of view, being on the back end of it, did the game require any changes for the TV show or, or was the version they were using essentially kind of the game out of the box? Originally when they approached us, they were pitching to use the Medieval 1 engine. And they, they gave us this pilot tester kind of thing they did where they had some people, and they just had this board, and they had these, like, little army men, and and it was all a bit all a bit kind of rubbish, all a bit sort of made of cardboard, stuck together with, with uh, sticky tape kind of thing um, as a sort of a tester. So this is the kind of thing we want to do. And they, they sort of came to the studio, and they sort of sat down with the bosses and were like, and they said... Um, but what they want to do is like they, they were going to record lots of really cool CGI for the actual fighting and the battle so that when they zoom the camera in close because you can't really get in close with the old medieval one engine um, and the bosses are like oh yeah that's that's yeah that looks really nice we like this idea but how about we do it with this Rome engine we've got here that looks amazing and they were like oh yeah that looks really good we'll, we'll do that so, um, but this was this was like several years before um, I'm, I'm not even sure to what degree I think Rome had been announced at this point but it may not have been but it was quite early on. Um, so the game was very much in an alpha state published by Activision at the time so Creative Assembly actually owned the Total War IP which is quite an unusual situation usually developers don't own the IP of the game they work on they kind of when you get the deal with the publisher the publisher will actually say okay we'll do this but we're going to own half the IP and things like that and because we were actually in, had so much control over Total War 
we were able to make this deal with Lion TV, who are the actual production company who then took it to the BBC. We were able to make this deal, get it done nice and quick without ever involving Activision, because the boss said that essentially if Activision was involved in any way, it would have been gone through so many kind of meetings and processes and things like this that it just would have never happened because it would just exploded into all the sorts of red tape that a publisher kind of does and, and wouldn't have happened. Saguntum is lost, and our Western allies have failed us. We must expect an invasion at Massalia! So the actual game itself was... Um, it was in a pre- pre-alpha state. It was very early, very broken. We had to get the game up and running and into a really, basically, release-level state about two years before the game released, which was an incredible amount of hard work that everyone had to put in, and an incredible amount of testing just to constantly... The way the Time Commanders was presented, the original um, first two seasons were presented, you had this projector wall that they would look at, and there was this kind of computer that would... AI that they would fight against that would act like the Napoleon or whoever it was they were fighting. It was actually two guys hiding behind a screen playing as the AI. Essentially, they would be directed by the advisor, the historical experts. They would say, okay, this is how they would fight the battle. This is what they would do. This is how they do that. And then they would mirror that. So they were just hiding behind a screen. Uh, and it's kind of a Wizard of Oz type thing. Oz type thing. They, they kind of hide behind a screen and control the other team. So it's played as multiplayer, which meant that we had to ensure that the because each each recording gets one shot, they would do uh, for for each show. They would have one shot. We couldn't afford any crashes, any hangs, any desyncs, which meant that we had to yeah we had to get this multiplayer to a very very polished, very very stable, very absolute release quality two years before we'd ever even release the game. And ultimately, quite kind of, you know rewarding in the long run because we ended up with this really well-polished, well-balanced multiplayer game when Rome 1 eventually released. It was kind of uh, a bit hairy at some moments, though. We, um, there's one of the episodes where... So there was, there was a known crash in the um, behaviour for the Roman legionaries. When they went into Testudo formation, you have this lovely animation where they all start one at a time raising their shields over their heads and it would ripple back and it looks, it looks so cool. But the problem was, once it locked in and triggered the next animation, which was them and sort of in the movement, and it, it would promptly crash, which obviously wasn't going to be very good for this kind of recording and stuff. But they decided that, well, actually we can risk it because the Testudo is a siege formation, they're only doing open field battles, so we don't have to worry about it. But then the boss said they're sitting there one day, they're recording, and somehow one of the, one of the players learned about the, the Testudo formation and became a bit obsessed with it. And when the battle's kind of going on, he suddenly starts shouting, Do the turtle! Do the turtle! And and the boss is sitting in the back behind the screen going, Nope, nope, nope. Oh, don't do this. Don't do this. Oh, no. And he sees him hitting the button, and he sees this unit start to form up to, to start doing the animation. So he grabs all his cavalry that are as far as they can and just sends them flying in as quick as he could. And there's this brilliant shot, which they got, as uh, as they filmed it, they got of this this... Testudo formation forming, and at the last seconds of the shields kind of come down, this horde of cavalry smashes into the side of this um, Testudo, and just men go flying everywhere. And it's kind of... They were basically half a second away from crashing the game, and then they would have never been able to air that episode, because they they, they couldn't re-record any of them. It it, it was a great kind of uh, 
fun experience to be able to make Time Commanders, and I'm, I'm so glad to see that it's back on BBC. I remember talking to a friend's dad. I was, I was in a dart team, and and he he used to watch it and talking about that. And he was he was a bit disappointed when I told him that the uh, the AI wasn't real. It was two guys behind a screen. He was a bit disappointed. <laughs> you know, you're working in the QA on the Total War series, and you said uh, in your Gamma Sutra blog that it helped you identify faults quickly uh, in Captain Kaon, but not necessarily solutions. So, does working in QA provide good visibility to the rest of the game development process, or you kind of shut off slightly and you only see a small kind of window. It depends on what QA department you're working in. If you're at a publisher QA, you're separate building, probably separate city. You have very little contact with a dev team. Um, and so that's kind of, I mean, it's still useful experience, but um, but being a, being a dev tester, being actually in the, in the studio, you're quite often, um, I mean, sometimes I was literally sat, and so my desk was right next to the guy who was coding the AI. Lovely chap, but he's very much a kind of a... He likes to think of himself as a Bond villain in his lair. He's like, I'm going to make this AI that just absolutely obliterates you because like, I'm, I'm not here to be nice to the player. I'm here to beat the player, and these are my minions. The AI is my minions, and I'm sending them to beat you, and that's kind of his, his really cool approach to how he does his AI. It's, uh... I, think, I think regular listeners of Lave Radio will find that uh, quite a familiar situation with the AI team. <laughs> Okay, now on to your second choice, uh, and it's another behemoth of battles and history, the mighty civilization. You're plotting a new course again, aren't you? The currents before us are ever-changing. We must adapt and press forward if we are to see our journey's end. And how will we know when we get there? Um, so what is it that you love about civilization? I started playing this on the Amiga and sort of loved it straight away. It's it's this infinitely replayable sandbox of um, so it's the, the kind of it's, it's this this guiding and growing this little sandbox civilization and taking it from this this you know bunch of guys this broker divide point or, or a little family as it now is I think is the little settler unit you get now is a little family and you just you know you cross the broker divide you form that first little village and then you just expand it and just grow it and. Till it, and it can it can just branch out organically in so many different directions, um, and because because every map is different, and because it's all procedurally kind of created and stuff, you have this every time you play it, it's you have this this exploration, this discovery of of moving units around the map and what is there, what can I find, what can I uncover? No, definitely. I mean, I, I personally I've played Civilization a little bit a long time ago. I think that it was back on the Amiga then. I think I've played Settlers more myself um i don't know about you chris if yeah I, I played a bit of the original civilization on the amiga i don't think i fully understood it at the time and i but i so i didn't really pick up civilization until very recently uh, and i picked up civilization 5 and i've played that a bit i have been told by people who are aficionados of the series that 5 5 isn't the best i mean i enjoyed it I, you know i did what i did what anybody would do the game randomly a- allocated me mahatma gandhi so i obviously went on a war footing and invaded all my neighbors because <laughs> you know what what would gandhi do um do you have a favorite in the series I mean, I, I very much enjoyed five, I, I, and even uh, the current one, six, is I think fantastic as well. With five, they made the jump to a hex grid and stuff, and uh, they they changed quite a lot. The, the the sort of transition, the differences between four and five were much bigger than with a lot of the other versions. Because so from one to two, essentially, 
Um, it just had better graphics and an isometric view, but the gameplay and pretty much everything that was going on under the hood was basically the same game. There was a little bit of extra units and things like that, but it was basically the same game. And 3, again, it just was it was mostly a graphical leap with a few bits of gameplay. And then 4, they really, with that sort of the 2D grid, yeah, the sort of the square grids uh, isometric, they, they really kind of nailed that version of Civ with 4, I think. Yeah, it was, it was a great fun version. It, it worked really well with five because they then when they made the switch to the hex grid, it was a little bit different. And it's um, there's a phrase Hollywood likes to use, which is uh, uniquely familiar. Which th- things need to be both unique and they also need to be familiar. Um, if if you change when you make a sequel, if you change things too much, you lose the familiarity. And I think a lot of the reason why people didn't like Civ Five is along with changing to a hex grid which meant the game felt very different. They had a bunch of different kind of gameplay things going on that were different. Um, so it did, I think, players kind of... I mean, I certainly... It took me a little while to kind of get into, and initially I didn't like it as much as I did 4. Um, but in the end, I actually, I've, I've played loads of, played loads and, and, and love it a bit. Um, and again, um, with 6, I, I, yeah, I've, I've played loads of that, and it's uh, I picked up over Christmas. Is there any particular element of Civilization's design that kind of inspires you or, or you know, has helped helped you with your own plans as a game designer? I think in terms of, I mean, of, of my sort of various plans for um, different potential games I can hopefully make in the future, um, well, I've got one idea for a kind of a city-building game, which I don't think is quite Civilization-y kind of sandbox, but um, I've got one kind of potential idea, but I, I tend to veer away from that kind of... Um, game because I think as a, as a single guy trying to make a game on it on your own I think that kind of games like that are just too big too much scope kind of too much to do um but I do have one like really cool idea that I kind of had the other day that I kind of really like which I don't think anybody's done so I kind of got to like google a bit and see if anyone's actually had that idea before otherwise you know it's, it's uh you know in terms of um the uh procedural generation aspect of the map is something that interests me because um I have an idea for a kind of a, a space game. Um, a procedural generated space game. I think you might have some uh, some competition there. <laughs> yeah. What I want to do is basically make a, um, a starship simulator. Basically, I want to kind of make this game... I mean, there is a couple of games like this. Not one that's quite what I want to do, but um, it's essentially like, yeah, okay, get a spaceship, get your mates, do it like multiplayer, get your mates, fly this spaceship from system to system and just have little fun adventures and stuff. So I kind of want it to be like a being inside an episode of Star Trek, you know. It, it won't be about combat. It won't be about things like that. It'll be it'll be you fly over here and and there's some story event. There's some thing going on in this system, and uh, you know it's some puzzle you have to solve. You know this encounter at Farpoint. You fly in and like what's going on with this Farpoint station, and and it'll be that that kind of thing where you're just like a group of friends in a, in a, basically in a spaceship that you fly around and do stuff with. But it's uh, yeah, it's something that I, I very much need to kind of like have a team of like a dozen plus people because one day I'm hoping to uh, that I will be able to expand the company beyond like just me into and, and have a group of people and, and we'll be able to kind of make this kind of this starship simulator. This, uh, but it would require kind of being able to procedurally generate a cool, interesting planet, which is you know beyond my capabilities to do. It's it's really hard to do. You know, look look at No Man's Sky. They I think they did a fantastic job with No Man's Sky, but at the same time, where 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 are the ice caps? Where's the uh where's the uh, tropical zone? You know, the, the the planets aren't believable. They're they're mostly just like a random hodgepodge. Um 
so it's, it's it's something that's very kind of hard to do procedurally generating an interesting uh, map and i think that's something civilization does really well it it, it always generates this interesting map to, to to play on um and i suppose it's a case of you know they they've probably been developing this this same algorithm for generating a map for a long long time you know they they uh, they may have rewritten it but you know this is something they started figuring out way back in the 90s with the original civilization and they've just sort of incrementally improving all the time and uh it always produces an interesting map that you can have fun playing on. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, most people in the elite community understand the concept that uh, you know procedural generation on one level is, is quite simple and straightforward, mm. but to do it well takes a lot of time yeah. and effort. And I mean, I'm actually going to have a crack at uh, procedural for my next game, which is because uh, I'm going to do a roguelike. So, because essentially, it's it's bespoke levels are always going to be more kind of fun because you can actually design the specific encounter and and set it up so it's just right whereas when things are procedural you're kind of relying on them just to organic it to organically create an interesting situation um an interesting gameplay and it's 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 always going to be really hard to do that it's a lot harder but then at the same time it's it's it can be a lot quicker and a lot more efficient i mean um one of the problems i've had with captain kaon is is how long it took to create all the levels um I mean, to begin with, it was taking about three days to create a level. Then it sort of exploded to about four, five, then six and seven days just to create each level, which is... Because originally I was trying to get, get the game out quite quick and, and make it smaller and, and get it out quicker. But the amount of levels I was creating, the amount of time it was taking. I mean, I did then kind of go back and figure out ways in which I was I was wasting time and I got it back down to... Um, I can get the core of a level done in basically a solid sort of 12-hour day, basically. Um and then you just sort of spend another day basically polishing it, and and then you're you're sorted. So in your blog, you talk about prototyping a first playable level, um, you know, a testing level in which to refine all the gameplay components, which will build up the final game. Are you able to explain to us the process of playing and identifying which ideas are fun and exciting, uh, and which one offers you know opportunities for new ideas? First playable level, sometimes referred to as a vertical slice, it's um, sort of a fairly common kind of practice with um, with game development. Yeah, normally, like if you're pitching, well, sort of at a, at a decent sized studio, when you're pitching to a, a publisher, you'll quite often either you'll pitch the concept and get it early, but you'll a lot of the actual kind of getting properly signed things is is like you deliver or, or your first milestone that you deliver long before alpha and this, this sort of things is is your first playable, your vertical slice because it's a it's essentially a little capsule that's the, the that's a section of the game that sort of sells okay this is what the game experience is going to be about this little five ten minute window of what the game is going to be and if you can get it working and get and get it interesting get it fun then then you know okay we take this and then we just make it bigger and then we have a full game so i, yeah, I did that for um for captain kaon and you take that level and you sit there and you play it and you try and kind of refine the 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 best parts of the gameplay out and where, where is it fun to play you know when when where do you experience those like that visceral kind of feeling in your gut of, and when when do you get those little pops of endorphins when's when does it feel right when does it feel fun and you kind of identify what bits of the level work and then you kind of look at other bits and go okay what where is it not working what where is it annoying me where is it so like the original um first playable level i had all the corridors all the like tunnels you flew in they were all uh, one to eight pixel uh, in size um in sort of sort of width and height and stuff and that that meant it was quite hard to actually maneuver the ship so i sort of quite re- quickly realized that yeah when i actually do the proper levels one of the rules i'm going to have to have for making them is don't have too many of these small tight tunnels um 
it needs to be more spaces with little bits connecting them that you fly between and that affects you so so yeah you kind of when you do this first player well you're able to kind of sit and play and figure out what works what doesn't and then because otherwise you can end up creating lots and lots of levels and then you go and you're playing them all and you're like well this level kind of works here and this level kind of works there and well, because you didn't have that start point of like, okay, these are the, these are the guidelines by which we're going to make the level because we've done it with this one level first and it worked like this. Then, so yeah, you, you normally you'll exp- you'll you'll take that kind of that first playable level or that or the vertical slice. It might not even be a whole level; it might be just a section of a level. But you you take that and then once you've got that working, you expand that into a full level. And once that's work, you've got that and you're happy with that. You expand it into multiple levels and that, and you just sort of organically grow the game from there. Yeah, as a developer, I've produced many vertical slices, and many of them end up in the bin. Unfortunately, it's uh, yeah. a sad fact that a lot of games, uh, you know, you have this great idea, and then you you put it together, and then you just, you know, sometimes you realise it's just not as fun as you thought it was going to be. So, so that level, that that first level, did it kind of make its way in in any shape or form into um, the into Captain Kaon? The level itself, um, I think it still exists somewhere. I've got it in a folder somewhere. It did, it's not actually uh, playable in the game. I don't even think it'll work if you run it anymore. But pretty much there are a couple of bits that still exist. So the the little blue sort of fuel canisters, uh, which are like the Turum fuel canister type things, that you uh, there's a couple of levels where you have to go and refuel the ship and pick these up. They're from the original first playable. I think the actual underlying kind of grappling code of how you pick stuff up that's pretty much from the first player version. I don't think that's changed. Oh, and there's like and the, the later Mars levels. There's little hostages in a cage. Yeah, pretty much everything else in that level is uh, is uh, been replaced. It's uh, all the tile sets have been redrawn. So the starry background. I used to have a like starry background there, um, and that was one of, the, one of the first things I did. And that piece of art remains unchanged. It stayed there for pretty much the entire development until a couple of weeks ago. I'm at Res. One of the uh, CA Artleys, because uh, they, they announced like Warhammer 2, so they shipped up half the studio, so they're all walking around in their hoodies and stuff. And he came over and he had he gave it a little game and he was like, yeah, that 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 background, it's got too many stars, you need to change it. So it, when you're flying around it, like it, it all looks a bit wrong and you, and you need to like do a simpler version of that. So yeah, I went home and I just redrew that and put a simpler one with with fewer stars on there. So uh, yeah, that that was uh, one of the last bits of, uh, of art from the original uh, first playable that I got rid of. So, so in that vertical slice, what what did you have that you thought was successful and and like a, you know a game mechanic that was a winner that you know kind of propelled you to you know complete the project? Well, essentially, it had the kind of the core sort of fun of the old Thrust games, um, and yeah, I felt it sort of, it, sort of it, it worked and delivered what it was kind of trying to do. That it's kind of trying to duck and weave and avoid getting shot and shooting back and. And not crashing and things like that. That kind of challenge of flight that Thrust had. It, um, it kind of had that. I mean, looking back, I should have put a bit more effort into to actually kind of like figuring stuff out at that stage, and I did because it's, um, yeah, sort of. It, I, I kind of designed it organically as I went along, and sort of had quite a few missteps along the way, which uh, potentially had I had I focused longer on on actually um, that first player, but especially things like the um, figuring out the simple things like the tile set um and the, and the sort of decorations and how i was gonna do that because a lot of the kind of how long it took to construct the levels was because i didn't t- t- kind of take the time to actually figure out an efficient way to do the levels when i was just dealing with one level so i ended up creating loads and loads of levels in an inefficient way when i should have actually figured out how to be more efficient beforehand but it, i mean it was it was a useful test for trying out lots of uh, different ideas like um 
I was, I was sort of trying to get to sleep one night. It was about two in the morning, and I kind of suddenly had this idea. I, I need coins. I need when you when you shoot the ships, they need to explode, and coins fly everywhere. And you go and fly along and collect the coins, and and then you get to spend those coins on upgrades. Yeah, that's what I need to do. So I kind of like wrote that down. The next day, I got up and I and I and I did it and stuff. And uh, I think that idea lasted about two weeks before I realised that the it was just no it didn't work no all these coins flying everywhere and having to fly around and pick up these coins and you're effectively crashing into things all the time just trying to pick all these coins up that bouncing around everywhere it's like no no take that out that's silly throw that away leave it to mario he can have his coins okay now we're going to move on to your third choice um uh ironically you recommend indie designers to come up with very small and focused ideas to make it manageable and allow room for great ideas to grow uh, and your next choice is surely the antithesis of this um, you've chosen the epic fantasy world of Skyrim. Um, so Skyrim is hugely popular for a lot of players. Uh, what do you like about it? Why do you spend most of your and what do you spend most of your time in game doing? Pretty much, it's a kind of you you just pick a direction and you start walking, and you're going to discover something cool. You're going to find, you know, some little little cave, and you go in, and there's there's um, there's going to be some little adventure you can have in there, and it's it's just that kind of okay, yeah, here's the main quest you can do if you want to, but, you know, five minutes after the game started, you've forgotten the main quest. Um, I think in the case of Skyrim, it was... it was I passed 100 hours, and I was like, I, I don't have the time to keep playing this anymore. I've got to kind of, like, put it down and, and, and you know, do some other stuff. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to mainline the, the main quest and go and, and, go and uh, just do that and... Um, Got all the way up to the top of the mountain, got the, got the Elder Scroll, got to the top of the mountain, down comes Alduin and put my sword through his face and i'm like haha i've done it and then he gets up and flies away and i'm like what the hell man uh and yeah so i never actually completed skyrim because because i was like damn it I, I i killed him why has he got up and flying away again what what, what, what are you pulling on me come on um but it's yeah it's this, this this kind of open go anywhere and just sort of like have an adventure kind of game which i kind of yeah i, I really like those those that sort of style of game i you know, i loved oblivion beforehand and uh yeah, with with um, Skyrim, this 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 having this great big world that you can explore, this with all these kind of there's always something to find somewhere. You know, you can open a open a chest and there'll be you know some interesting artifact or or a wooden spoon. Um, yeah, it's just such a well detailed, well put together, well thought out world that uh, has lots of just cool, fun kind of different ways of fighting and different ways of doing things and. Uh, yeah, I look forward to when they eventually uh, do a do another one. Because I, I found the interesting thing about Skyrim is that, you know, if you want, you can play it in this very linear way. You can just play like this main story, and I dare say there were some people who just did that. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there is so much more to the game. If if you're into that, you know, once you decide that you like the game, you can go off then and, and find out all these other side quests, which is uh, uh, quite good. I, I'm not sure how many actual kind of gameplay hours it takes to do everything. I heard rumours that Oblivion was like a thousand hours if you wanted to go and do everything, but I, I it seems like that's a lot. 
So essentially, you're, you're a one-person development team. So, and you know, as you said, you know, you wouldn't want to take on the challenge of something like Skyrim without uh, you know a supporting team. Um, but there must have been areas of Captain Kaon that were hard for you uh, to cover. You know, so, so what were the biggest challenges you had um, in actually producing the game? Probably the biggest problem has been audio. So essentially, I've had to learn how to create sound effects and things like that. Often doing four, five, six different versions of a bullet to try and get something that you know sounds like an interesting sort of gun firing and things like that. Especially as I'm, I'm kind of, I'm trying to make it sound kind of old school and retro. Yeah, it's, it's been a tough challenge to do, and the music especially. Uh, I mean, still there's a couple of bits where I'm missing music that I need to kind of go and do versions for, like the like the cutscenes, for instance, at the start of the campaign don't have any music, which but I, I keep trying to like do an interesting piece of music but it's it's yeah making music's really hard and i thought i i, I play guitar i was hoping it would kind of it would it would my knowledge of how to kind of how to play stuff on guitar would kind of translate to making it in computer software um or sort of making some kind of cool music in, in, in a computer software but um it kind of really doesn't um there's a degree to which like knowing music theory knowing what different notes comprise the chord and how to and what their relationship are and how they kind of sound interesting is um yeah, it's, it's like that. That I'm okay with actually kind of like making the, the music sound interesting and stuff like that is um, is tough. And and certainly the the music in Camp Captain Kaon has been a bit bit marmite in the like. Definitely, some people have said they they really like the music, and then there's other people who said like, "Wow, this music's terrible." The other thing, of course, is promoting the game and kind of and, and stuff, which is um, that was something I've I've never done before. I've never done I've never done PR. So like, how do you you know how do you, how do you approach press? How do you get coverage? How do you get exposure? How do you kind of how do you present the game in an exciting way? Like doing trailers. Um, I think the the launch trailer I I did recently um, uh, was one of kind of quicker turnarounds for doing a trailer that I've I've had, and it was considerably better than all my other trailers. And uh, some of the, like my early trailer, like the first trailer I did was like just awful. The second trailer wasn't much better. But you know, it, was, it was a case of like kept kept doing it, kept doing it. Eventually, got the hang of it. Eventually, managed to kind of get things that because I had to learn how the software works. I had to kind of, I mean, I'm kind of fortunate in terms of um, I took photography at college, so I have a little bit of an eye for composition, things like that. I I, I took a role of um, um, of uh, sort of, uh, of script writing, of story writing, of scene writing, which is I think it goes arrive late, leave early. I think is the expression. Um, essentially when you write a scene if, you, if you're writing like a screenplay and you're writing a scene or something like that you you don't want to start the scene with lots of boring preamble before the action gets started and and then you don't want to hang around once the scene's done when you're kind of doing clips of the trailer i kind of tried to do this sort of what's the interesting bit in the trailer i want to show and okay don't don't have like five seconds lead in and five seconds lead out for that because otherwise you know just sort of just a couple of seconds just to, to, to establish this shot and then then show the cool thing you want to show them, and then just a just a second after that, and then just cut away, and then move on to the next thing. That was that was kind of something that I had to kind of learn, had to figure out. Yeah, and these are kind of the, the things that that made made the venom and stuff. Because I, I had a reasonably well-rounded kind of. Um, I spent a lot of time learning code and learning art. Those core three pillars, I had a good kind of grounding in, but having to learn a lot of new skills and having to learn to a reasonably high degree, which um, in some cases I think I still need to actually improve. Yeah, the PR aspects, the promoting—that's you know, getting getting your game noticed is the absolutely the hardest thing, especially now with the with the saturation of the indie market. It's it's so hard to kind of get anyone to notice a game. It's uh, 
yeah, I think that's probably the, the toughest kind of aspects of, of, of development. In terms of like where, where the kind of things w- went well and where, where I kind of um, playing to my strengths, as it were, um, is because I, I spent a lot of time as a kid with, with an Amiga just drawing little pixel art things. I've got a very solid grounding of how to kind of do pixel art. And I was, so I was able to create a very sort of very vibrant pixel art game that has a really strong Amiga feel to it because it kind of because essentially I was just doing what I did when I was a kid, making Amiga style, making an Amiga game, but just making it on a PC in, in a new engine. That uh... I was I was thinking that just looking at the kind of the walls in um, Captain Kaon, you've got this kind of you know you've got this kind of rocky texture that's interspersed with kind of crystals sticking out of the side and it did really sort of feel like it was they were like tiles from an amiga game like some of the old um landscape fill textures for something like worms has that similar kind of because i'm not an artist i don't know quite how to describe it but there's just this aesthetic which kind of really does evoke the kind of amiga era So you're definitely a fan of Epic Games, and your next choice is part of a series which has started with some of the earliest years in gaming uh, and continues to grow uh, and develop in scope. You've chosen Final Fantasy X. This is it. Die and be free of pain, or live and fight your sorrow. So, I guess the most obvious question is, you know, of all the Final Fantasy games to choose from, um, why why ten? It was it was actually the first Final Fantasy game I played. I um, I've got a bunch of the others now and stuff, but I, I the first, that's sort of my introduction to the, the sort of series, and I love the characters, I love the story, and I love the the, the battle system. It, each encounter was like a little puzzle. You, you, okay, you get dropped into this encounter. Here's like two or three guys you've got to fight, and you've got to you've got to pick your moves. Look what their moves are. Figure out, okay, what what do I do in what order, and how to kind of to kind of beat them. And to begin with, when you arrived at a new area, the first set of these encounters that because as you run around, you just like get these random like pop up encounters that you have to fight. And to begin with, it's always really hard, and you and you're scraping your way through but you keep fighting and you keep going and you, and you keep figuring out different ways to do it and you keep leveling up and you keep improving the right and you think okay i need i need this skill i need that spell i need to improve there and improve here and then and in the end you figure it out and if you keep going and keep kind of working at it you can get to the point where you're able to go into these battles and you're able to basically beat them without them ever even having a turn you're able to just kind of outmaneuver them outthink them and just put them on the back and just beat them without ever taking a hit or giving them a go which i think is really really well designed really really rewarding that you can you can go through this approach of i'm struggling to beat this this encounter to i can i can learn my way through it improve it and and really nail it and it's uh made it such a rewarding and replayable experience that um yeah it's it's uh, I, I noticed there's um the, uh, there's a remake uh, remastered version on Steam now, so at some point I'm going to pick that up and play it, play it through again because uh, yeah, it, it, it had a really nice story, really enjoyable story, really interesting kind of like story with some cool twists and stuff. Which um, you know, a lot of stories these days they get a bit kind of like cliched and things like that. And it was it had an interesting, well done story with some really nice characters, some really cool characters, especially like. Now, compared to like the the Final Fantasy games we started to get in recent years, where it's uh, well, I kind of gave up with uh, thirteen, I think it was, because um, 
Yeah, I mean, Lightning was not that interesting a character, and I, I can't remember any of the other characters in that, other than, like, there was one guy with a crap afro. Um, and that's about all I remember from Final Fantasy XIII. Oh, that and the, 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 the battle system was... Um, you just you just kept pressing X and it was, and it was so easy that at one point I um, switched the um, so I'm playing on the Xbox on the TV and I just thought um, I wonder what time the football starts so I flicked over the TV and uh, I was just checking the score on the football or something and I yeah, I, I flicked over and so I watched it for a couple of minutes and then I flicked back and because the whole time I just been sitting there pressing the X on the on the um, on the gamepad when it switched back I'd won the battle. Which you know is a is a fantastic example of just terrible design. If you don't even need to be watching the game to win it, then that's that's not that's not good design. I, I, I had a I had a similar experience with um, one of the Super Paper Mario games. Uh, you know, you, you, we kind of talk in gaming about certain things being like being a mouse, like in a wheel. And there was a literal moment in one of the Paper Mario games where there was actually a mouse wheel that you had to just run in for five minutes to unlock something. And I, I did what you did. I switched the TV over to a different channel and I just kept my finger down on the run button and just watched 10 minutes of TV, skipped back to the game and like, oh, okay, I've done the bit with the mouse wheel. But yeah, I think yeah. sometimes... Oh, Chris, how do you know that the developers didn't mean that as a satire and you just completely missed the point? If, do you know it may have been? I, but it was off the back <laughs> of the fact that that game um, features more backtracking than I think any other game I've played. This is my story. It'll go the way I want it. Just talking about your blog on Gamma Sutra, um, why did you start doing it? I mean, is it a form of catharsis for you, or <laughs> do you genuinely just you know want to pass on your experiences to other people? A bit of both for that, yeah, definitely. It's it's nice to be able to kind of take time to certainly. I think like passing on information, things I've learned to you know any because yeah, definitely. I I um I go to the Brighton, I hang out with the Indies down there. Um, they have a sort of a monthly uh, networking drinking session. I go down there and I hang out with them, and you can you, know, you can learn useful bits of information from other from other indies and um which um you know there's there's not always that strong a kind of a um pool of information out there if you try and google stuff it's not always that easy to find and the other problem of course is that the the you know, the state of the industry changes so much um kind of it's constantly changing and evolving that any you know you find an article that's six months old it's it's six months out of date the information may not be be relevant so certainly the kind of learning anything i've i've kind of learned i think is uh, passing on that information is is kind of a useful thing to do it's a helpful thing to do and it's it's so it's something i kind of quite like to do um it's also a i mean certainly from um when i was getting captain k on through green light these these writing these articles these uh, blogs on the game of sutra was a really sort of helpful way of getting a bit of interest and getting people to kind of notice it i think um in terms of all the various kind of places I went to try and get votes and 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 promote uh, my my Greenlight campaign, um, the Gamma Sutra blogs was the sort of that got me the majority of the votes by by a long way. It was it was it was that was sort of the main source of where I got all my votes from. Past the initial sort of uh, bunch I got, I got. Yeah, I mean certainly it's it's. I'm hoping to um, write a uh, oh yeah sort of a two part kind of um, post mortem sort of. Of Captain K and of like what 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 it was like, what I've gone through, kind of what's uh, the experience and stuff, and um, 
and yeah hopefully that'll kind of be useful the first blog i wrote for gamma sutra was this kind of this um going indie kind of thing and it was like things i learned from having a career at a big studio to going to a single indie and what was it what's it like and what how's it different and things like that but i think um the kind of state of india at the moment is because like there's there's loads of people i talk to and they're kind of like oh yeah i quite like to, i've got a little idea i want to do and i quite like to kind of like go and do it and things like that and uh i think being able to write my kind of experience of like okay this is what it's like right now to go and release a game in 2017 you know this is is i think useful information to kind of provide for people because um until we see what Steam Direct does, I mean, Steam is basically so saturated that, um, yeah, it's it's next to impossible to get any kind of attention, any kind of any kind of sales or anything on on Steam. It's uh, and I think that's you know telling people that like, hey, you know what, your your game is probably going to tank is is useful information to say to people because you know anybody in a situation of being like. I've got a nice job, decent wage. I'm at this, this studio. I'm working at a good game, but do I, you know, do I want to kind of like actually go and make my little passion project, or do I not want to do it? Because you know, five years ago, you could do that. You could just jump ship. You could spend a year making a game. You could release it, and you could actually be pretty successful. But uh, the sort of the state of indie at the moment is more of a case of, um, yeah, probably no one's going to buy your game. So maybe don't jack in your job. Um, and I think that kind of is useful advice to give to people as a kind of a, you know a fair warning of like hey you know it's not as easy as it as it was five years ago the kind of the, the new indie golden age has basically kind of ended. Yeah, definitely. And uh, if anybody's interested <clears throat> in uh, your green light journey, I highly recommend they read your blog because you've made a few posts on there about uh, your experiences. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because you know, with indie development, uh, you know, it's saturated. And if people uh, aren't going to give up their jobs, is that going to affect the quality of indie in a way? I guess, what is the motivation for a lot of these indie developers? Uh, is it uh, kind of recreating nostalgia from, for instance, like the Amiga years, like yourself? And also, you know, is there actually, you know, a lot of innovation as well that might potentially be lost um, with green light going? It's tricky to predict how things are going to go with Steam Direct because I mean, and Greenlight is a is is a broken system. It's um and it's so open to abuse that um yeah, it's, it's great that you know Steam are finally going to take it round behind the shed and put a bullet in its head because it's it needs to go away. But how Steam Direct is going to work, how how viable that is, um, how exploitable that is, you know, we've got to kind of wait and see. It's very, I mean, for me, the the, the First stumbling block, of course, is is what will the potential fee be, um, and I think that's also the most kind of important aspect of it. You know, if if it's too low, then it's gonna, it's not gonna do what it what it needs to do, which is stop all these you know these um, terrible little games that are just flooding Steam. It's not gonna stop any of those. It's not gonna stop. So it needs to be reasonably kind of high to to have an effect, but at the same time, if it's if it's too high, it's gonna kind of yeah, it's gonna it's gonna exclude a lot of people. I'm kind of looking at it, and if it's if it's a thousand dollars or more, then you know I think like thousands probably my upper limit, but maybe not even that. I'm, I'm I probably can't afford more than that. I mean, I'm I'm at the moment I'm kind of like dividing my time between getting the sort of last few bits of bugs and stuff and polish out and adding a few more features to Captain K on things like that and just doing a little bit of, you know, after-release support. Because, you know, that's a quite important thing with Indie. You've got to keep, like, adding a few features to your games and stuff like that because, you know, keep it ticking over and stuff. You can't just, like, release it and move on because uh, in Indie you've got to keep, like, supporting it post-release. So I'm kind of dividing my time between that and between um, starting my next game. 
and I effectively I need to kind of get enough of that done and get it polished enough that I can actually do a green light campaign and attempt to get through green light before they actually finally like nail that door shut because yeah the the fee for Steam Direct could be you know could be quite high and that could be prohibitive for me yeah it's it's tricky but at the same time the kind of the the curators um because yeah when I when I did green light I kind of what I rapidly found was the whole curator system was basically uh, it was just defunct at that point it was just no one was doing anything you you, you go on um look on you know the big games like your pc game your rock your rock paper shotgun these big sites and stuff like that and you look to their curator lists and they hadn't changed in like a couple of years so you know pretty much everybody started it and were like oh yeah okay we're gonna do this curator stuff and they started doing it and then they rapidly went well this is pointless and stopped doing it and uh so the, the potential changes to that if they can make curators work and make them happen and make them interesting and make that so that you know there's there's ways of actually um because essentially it's, it's like connecting with people with your game through Steam. You know, you, you want you want people to log on to Steam. You want Steam to connect them with your game. You know, you want it to connect people with the, with the right people. You know, when I did my green light, I had lots of like comments on the on the on the page and stuff, and they're all great except one guy. There was one guy who basically wrote this this angry little kind of what's the point of games like this? Why do people make games like this? Uh, kind of this really angry like all caps post, and I thought, well, that's a bit you know unnecessary but hey you know internet people do that but i i kind of had a little you know sneaky look at his profile and um he had his game list on there and it was a very small game list and there was no indie games on there which made me wonder why is he voting on greenlight games and why is he you know complaining about my game on greenlight and i also noticed that he only really played two types of game he played call of duty and he played total war and that was it (laughs) and i thought well you liked all my other games what's wrong with this one (laughs) And that's the curse, isn't it, as a creative, that you know you get a review like that. And, and of all the reviews that you've probably had for Captain K on the feedback you've had, you know, that's the one you you know, that's the one you remember. Like for, for my stuff, I make uh, I make full cast audio drama. And I've had loads and loads of really great feedback, but the only reviews that I can remember word for word were the negative ones. Yeah, you definitely can't they they're the ones that kind of weigh on your mind and stuff like that, but the negative views of barriers are a wonderful source of feet of, of kind of feedback of where to improve your game. You know, they, they point out like, Oh, Hey, this, this is, you know, this isn't I I didn't like this. I didn't like that. This is, this is, this is terrible. Oh, you know, this is what's, what's this about? And it's, it's a kind of, you know, they, they help you highlight, Oh, actually I need to go and fix this. This is a problem I need to sort out. You know, this is, so negative reviews can actually be really helpful. Unfortunately, the problem with negative reviews is they happen like right at the point where you release the game, at which point you kind of, there's not actually that much you can do about it. And, um, well, I mean, you know, they're not there to serve the developer anyway. They're there to serve the consumer. You know, they're there to help the consumer make a decision. They can be a great source of kind of like feedback because, like, you, you give your game to your friends and they play it, and they, they'll be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, no, that's good." Because you know, if it, if they don't like it, they're not going to tell you it's bad because they don't want to hurt your feelings, which is a uh, you know. Oh, I don't know. Well, I like to think I can trust uh, Chris Jarvis and Alan Stroud to give it to me straight if something I've done is rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> I think Alan actually relishes it sometimes, but brutal honesty. <laughs> but it's it's quite interesting because you know there used to be this concept of a bias where um, happy customers don't usually leave you a review; it's only the bad yeah. ones that do. Whereas I don't know to be fair to Steam reviews, it's nice to see a lot of people posting positive stuff. You know, it seems yeah. a lot more balanced than I would expect it to be, given it it's the internet. And I find the um, Steam reviews on um, the Captain K on a kind of um, most of the positive reviews are basically like one sentence. Um, and the um, the biggest longest review uh, is the only negative review I've got, which uh, is unfortunate because it's also the one that the most people are kind of like clicking on the uh, 
that was useful review kind of thing and it's floated to the top which uh is you know is uh, a bit unfortunate but um the thing is like if you read it it's actually like a lot of it's quite positive yeah he basically encountered a bug that i've never seen at any point ever and no one else has as 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 kind of reported ever but it kind of it, he got stuck and then was like oh i can't play this game so kind of give it a down click which was like ah and I, and I think sometimes you feel bad. I mean, I, I, I loved this game I played the other day um, called Farabelle. It's a really nice little turn-based uh, strategy game. And I gave it, I played it, and I, I really enjoyed it. And I gave it I gave it a positive, like I gave it a thumbs-up review. But I was quite critical in some of the things I was saying in terms of the, the writing of the game, because obviously that's one of my, you know, one of my areas. And there were a few other things that I just felt the game didn't feel totally polished or finished in comparison to something like say chaos reborn and then i discovered after i'd written the review i discovered that this game was was like yourself the whole game had been basically developed by one guy and then i felt really bad because it's like well actually all those things that i've called out as being not very well developed or, or or not very finished it's amazing that the guy even developed a game of that quality on his own at all and i instantly felt like well actually you know this isn't valid criticism to level at a game that has a team of one because you know i'm just kind of i'm nitpicking essentially what is a what is generally a really good game whereas if that game had been made by a team of like 20 people then you know clearly it wasn't quite finished but uh, yeah it's a difficult it's a difficult area I don't think that should really count for anything. I think ultimately, you know, you um, if you're working on your own, you should be making a small game that you can make on your own. You shouldn't be trying to make something, you know, big and stuff like that. And you should you should still deliver. You know, the final game should still be working and polished and be good and shouldn't be, you know, you, you shouldn't get a free pass because you're just like the only person working on something. You should still be held up the same standards as as, as everybody else. It should be your final release should be judged as as is as as a game on its own right kind of thing it's uh yeah well no i think that's a really really important point and that's that's one thing i'd say to any indie developer in that you know we can't all afford to outsource our art or you know sound or music or whatever but when it comes to testing the game and, and play testing the mechanics get your friends mm. around and get them to play it because you're so involved with it mm. and you know it inside out and you just expect everybody to have the same knowledge that you do uh, and it's just not the case so it's invaluable so even if you got to bribe people with beer and pizza like i've done in the past it, you really should do it one of the um useful things i actually i pretty much did like right from the start was um because when i got game maker i got the, the master collection it, it included the android um exporter was i would keep i would so at home i'd be working on it making playing it on the pc but i would always output the android version so i always had it, the latest version on my phone every thursday night i'm because uh, like see in my hometown every thursday night i'm still going off and drinking with them and they're just they're sort of after work thursday night drinking and stuff i would go along i pull my phone out and be like here's the latest version here you go and i i give it to people and i see what they thought and watch them play and things like that and when i speak to people down like with the brighton indies and things like that and, and say oh you know what are you working on i pull my phone out and i'm like here you go have a, have a little go on this um, and i sort of look over the shoulder and watch what they do and stuff like that and uh, see how they play it Okay, and now we come to your final choice, a game which, like Captain K-On, harks back to the Amiga days, uh, but it's remained a classic, being updated and remade over and over again for new machines, and it's Football Manager.
So why is it on the list? Pretty much since the the first when it, back when it was called Championship Manager on the Amiga, and uh, well, I had the uh, Championship Manager Italia demo, and I played a lot of that, and then that was sort of right towards the end of having an Amiga because I I then got a PC and Champman Two came out, and I uh, got Champman Two on my PC and played that ridiculously. Uh, just, I, I've I've always been a, a football fan. Unfortunately, I'm an Arsenal fan, and uh, yeah, it kind of uh, sucks to be an Arsenal fan at the moment. Only time we'll ever win a league is uh, is in Football Manager. It's such a great game for this kind of you know this this just building your team up. I, I just always love the the kind of the scouting and the especially like trying to find those you know find some uh, little teenager wonder kid in the, in the, some Romanian third tier league and being like oh yeah he, he could be good and he, you get him over and you, and you develop him and then you I, I I remember having this like this little Danish kid that I kind of remember like that the scout was like oh yeah he's good and so i signed him and he sat and he sat in the reserves and then completely forgotten about it. and then several seasons later my right back's injured my other right back's injured and i'm like i've got to go and dip into the reserves and get a right back and i look in the reserves and then there's this right back and his stats are awesome and i'm like why is he not my first choice right back what's he doing in the reserves and basically he had just been like in the youth team filtered from the under 16s into the under 18s filtered into the reserves automatically and just like never at any point did i um did i actually think to look in the reserves and check on him because i forgot about him and i suddenly saw this player i'm like he's like his crossings are 20 his crossings 20 why is his tackling's 20 why am i not playing this right back so so i played him and he, he just immediately kept getting man the matches and, and was amazing <laughs> yeah there's just like so many like little cool like little stories of just like playing this game of like uncovering players and like and it's it's, it's yeah it's this this getting to kind of you know manage a, a, a football team and trying like get for glory i mean i remember uh my i usually take um uh or used to usually take uh wolverhampton wanderers because they're a decent uh side in the championship and i didn't like starting with the premier league team because it's like you get something that you can kind of like get out of the championship and then you kind of get work well, you're out of the premier league and uh yeah i remember uh doing the treble with wolverhampton wanderers with Ryan Babble, before anyone knew who Ryan Babble was, I, I pitched him from Ajax's youth team and played him as my striker and did the treble. And then Liverpool signed him in real life, and I was like, oh, why isn't he coming to Arsenal? And then I saw what he's actually like in real life and was like, no, no, you're all right, you can keep him. Yeah, I just, I've, I've played it for so long, every every version, and uh, except the latest version, because um, I'm still playing the year before, um, or I was still playing the year before I got sacked yesterday, so I'm like, god damn it. Three, four matches into the season, and... Uh, lost my first game and they're like you lost the game you're fired oh so it's like real life then yeah <laughs> i mean football managing management sims are quite interesting i mean uh, I, I said that you know harking back to the amiga days you know that's back when the graphics had got to the point where you know it kind of crystallized the management and you know actually watching games but i mean football management games date back to the bbc micro and things like you know mm. really way back i mean i'm not a big football fan but I remember playing a football management game uh, on the BBC and, you know, they worked because they were so simplistic. You know, there, yeah. was, there wasn't really any need for great graphics. You know, it would just work mm. with, you know, screens full of text. I suppose my question with, with football management games is, you know, they come out very regularly. You know, apart from uh, the graphics, have they evolved in any way? Well, it's interesting in the kind of a... <clears throat> it's that sort of... Um it's little bits it's little incremental changes you know it's it's you kind of you compare 15 to 16 and there's not a huge amount of difference but if you compare 10 to 16 then there's a huge amount of difference it's and with with like fifa and provo and stuff like that you know the amount that actually changes with each version when you consider how much they're charging there is the degree to which 
you know all the players change and stuff like that and but it does feel like a like they're a little bit exploitative in that sense because like you know you have this as a football fan you need the latest teams you need the latest players you need the latest this and the latest that and they're exploiting that kind of oh well if you want the absolute latest you've got to you've got to come and pay our full price release for it there's significant licensing costs associated with football games so yeah know. i suppose there's there's um there is that aspect as well yeah I play Nintendo Pocket Football Club, which has absolutely no licensing for anything, <laughs> and all the teams have made up names. I mean, it's this kind of game that can work without the real players. It's just, uh, yeah. I mean, well, for me, from my point of view, I kind of because I usually play Football Manager sort of buried in the sort of lower leagues. I mean, lately I've been playing it from a League Two side, and it's like you know you you, you don't uh, know any of these players are, so it's it's. Uh... Okay, final question then. Uh, Captain Kaon very much recalls the Amiga era of gaming. Uh, do you think there's other games or genres you feel have been left behind, uh, which are worthy of a revival? The big one that I kind of uh, was my favourite genre when I was a kid, um, which you know died, but uh, has been already been revived in indie was um, was your space sims and stuff. They're like um, one of my favourite games in Amiga was. Uh, um, Frontier Elite 2 played that a ridiculous amount of time um, one of my favourite games of all time was uh, Free Space 2 I've got uh, I've got the Oculus Rift and that comes with uh, Eve Valkyrie and that's an incredible game but again it's like as much as it's it's good it's it's not as good as Free Space 2 no one has no one has done space combat as good as Free Space 2 did it there, within indie there's lots of really cool space sim type games and stuff like that now space combat games um there's still yet to be an actual kind of single-player, story-driven, mission-based, just the combat, get it right, get it really good. When I got into the industry, that was going to be my, like, when I get into a position to actually, like, design my own game, make my own game, I'm going to make a space combat sim, and, and it's going to be as good as Free Space 2, and it's going to be amazing, and, um, well, you never know, maybe one day, uh, one day I'll get to do it. I mean, there's basically that and point and clicks, which uh, you know, point and clicks have managed to make a, a resurgence. Which you know, I think it's it's fantastic the way indie actually. Most of these genres that we were told ten years ago, these genres are dead. You'll never see them again. They're done. No, they're all they're all coming back. They're all you know, there's there's people out there who who remember them and enjoyed them and will sit down and actually make a new version. And there's enough people out there who remember them, enjoy them, who will buy that new version. And there's going to be people who want to play it. You know, which is the great great thing about indie. There's a lot of indie which is kind of recreating that nostalgia and remaking old games. Mm. And I'm just wondering if there's new kids coming, you know, coming to gaming now, you know, looking through Steam, are they going to be disappointed with the, the indie gaming scene in that it seems to be quite focused towards older games and remakes? Or do you think that there's still potential there? It's definitely tricky in terms of, you know, young gamers... Um... Because yeah, there is this this big gap at the PlayStation kind of era. Because there's suddenly been a bit of a fad to go back and remake the sort of PlayStation One, your PSX style games. But the problem is these these early 3D was they actually really weren't very good. They were very ugly. The gameplay was often very clunky, but they worked because they were they were 3D and this was the new sexy thing. So people, you know, you can yeah you can go back and play Resident Evil One and it's still a pretty good game, but at the time, Resident Evil was a great game, and there was a whole bunch of Resident Evil clones, and people still played and enjoyed them. But if you go back and play Resident Evil One, yeah, you're still going to enjoy it because it's still a good game. 
but a lot of these clones you if you play them you're going to be like these are all awful games so i think there's a kind of a, there's a gap where 2d the amiga stuff like that you can still you can go back and you can recreate cool pixel art games and stuff like that and even like the crude pixel like nidhog that kind of style you can go back and you can do this yeah it, it's still you know it still can look good but there's this kind of gap where in terms of a distinct style it, you go back to the psx and the style is that well it looked really grainy and blocky and horrible you know if you're making a um a first person shooter you can be a bit retro and you can go and make a doom style that kind of pixelated doom style game you can do that and there are some there are some indies who, who go and do that and and some of them make some pretty reasonable games and stuff you wouldn't go and make something that looked like quake because you know, you look at Quake now, it's all blocky, it has a limited colour palette, it's awful. You, you, you just wouldn't do it. You, you use a decent number of polygons and you, you you do some put some good textures on it. So I think there's definitely this kind of like, within the sort of retro spaces it's and the nostalgia spaces, you've got to, you can only do the games when they're that that old. You can't do a certain period, there's just a big hole where you, you can't really do games for. And certainly there's a, there's a generational problem of, you know, the young gamers nowadays, they you know, maybe they they look at these old clunky pixel art games and go, "Oh, that's a bit ugly. Why do I want to play that?" When I looked into um, my sort of early access performance and I compared the my early access sales to games that sold around the same time as me, I found that yeah, two D two D games um, just don't really sell very well. You know, three D sells better than a lot better than two D, and I, I certainly think potentially that's that's because you know the younger generations of gamers grew up where pretty much 2D was dead and before 2D got revived in sort of indie and stuff like that and certain other games in that gap where it was basically 3D or nothing that's when they started playing games that's when they grew up so for them seeing a 2D game it's like that's just old rubbish that they're not interested in that was the old crappy games from before they started playing I know, yeah, it's, I, it's, I, I think there needs to be you know i mean i want to draw a bit of a distinction because obviously there's some games out there which you know they have the pixel art and they look beautiful and it was actually like a an aesthetic choice um mm. towerfall ascension comes to mind um but at the same time you know it's not they weren't trying to recreate necessarily you know a game of old uh you know it was still a very solid game in its own right uh, and so it was just an aesthetic choice that they did that. You know, my 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 issue is just trying to recreate maybe simplistic old games, which uh, we might have some kind of nostalgia for, but really mm. we, we got the rose-tinted glasses and they weren't really that good. I look to indie as uh, innovation in that you can produce a game which a publisher wouldn't take a risk on, Mm. You know, that's what I'd like to see from indie, and I'd like to see less of this nostalgia. You know, and I, I know Captain Kaon kind of harks back to that, but at the same time, you know, it's radically different from you know, it it isn't just a thrust clone. At the end of the day, there's so much more to it than that. I think anyone who's trying to make a game should try and innovate a little bit. Uh, so I think pretty much the majority of innovation all happens within the indie space because, um, yeah, I mean, publishers, big publishers, AAA and stuff, they're so risk averse, and which I mean, they they kind of have to be because big games they they cost so much money to make, and the profit margins are so slim, you can't afford to fail, you can't afford your game not to sell, kind of thing. Um, I mean, there's still a degree to which it's true within indie that 
yeah, it, it's it's you still you know you still need your game to sell well, kind of thing to break even, and it's it's so you still have that same kind of problems that they have just on a different kind of scale, because you have that kind of personal investment, and it's because it's your own little idea, and because you know you're the one funding it, trying to communicate to 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 this these kind of people at the publishers what your game is going to be and why your game is going to be cool is is very hard because they're generally not really gamers and don't really understand what you're talking about but if you tell it in terms of hey here's this here's this amazing game that sells really well that people love and here's this amazing game that sells really well and people love it, and i'm going to take these two games and i'm going to like mush them together and that game's going to be amazing they're like oh yeah because that's good and that's good so of course that must be good so yeah you can have money and um that's why there's no innovation within the big games market because yeah there's the, the people who sign off the checks don't understand the, the language of which developers talk about games and why and the language which they communicate their ideas they is not a language that they can communicate in so and as long as the the kind of the um profit margins get smaller and smaller then they're going to become more and more risk averse and we're going to see you know we're going to see it continue to stagnate within the indie space that's where we get lots of cool innovation and that inevitably does spread out to to triple a once you see that, oh, here's this, there's this really successful indie game that does this, that does that, that does the other, then then you know AAA will be like, oh, we can do this, we can take that, and we can put it in our own game. And but yeah, it's innovation within the industry is 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 you know something that we need to constantly be improving and innovating the games you make. And uh, at the moment, that only happens in the indie space. Thanks very much, James, for joining us. Uh, it's been it's been a great little chat. Thanks for having me. Uh, we also thank you very much to James. Have some uh, codes for Captain Kaon to give away for Steam. So if you'd like to win yourself a copy of Captain Kaon and play the Thrust Clone for yourself, uh, all you need to do is email us or tweet us your own top five remote outpost games picks. Uh, you can do that by sending us an email to info at laveradio.com or you can tweet us at laveradio or hey, you can even send it to us on our Facebook page. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you and we will announce those winners soon so thanks very much for uh, joining us James and thank you for listening guys and uh, we'll catch you next episode Remote Outpost Games is a live radio podcast with sound production and editing by RadioTheatreWorkshop.com Your hosts were Christopher Jarvis and John Stabler, and the music was by purpleplanet.com. Remote Outpost Games.